Welcome to the Mount Carmel Christian Church Podcast. In our sermon series, Here as in Heaven, we'll be looking at how God's promises can give us hope for our hurts. Our speaker today is teaching minister Tim Peace. And so I wanted to start off with something that Jesus said in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, in the Gospel of Matthew, right there in chapter 26. He says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? I have a confession. This command of Jesus to not worry is the biggest struggle for me in the entirety of Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have other struggles, but this is the one that is ever-present always persisting, and seems never to leave me alone. This morning, we're going to talk about anxiety. We're in this series, Here is in Heaven, and each week we're going to touch on a particular subject that deals with the struggles that we have on a mental and emotional and spiritual level in life. And so we're going to start with anxiety today, and as I was thinking about this message this week, I was thinking about the ways in which I've uh, dealt with anxiety in my own life. Over the last four years, I've uh, gone to counseling. I have had spurts in life where I was in counseling for a good number of weeks on a week-to-week basis, eight, ten weeks in a row. Uh, presently, I kind of do like a once-a-month tune-up because I'm like a car, apparently. I don't start all the time. Anyway, um, and throughout that process, I've learned that I have anxiety. I uh, have been told that I've got moderate levels of anxiety to particular uh, situations that will trigger high anxiety alert issues. I have had panic attacks. If you were here last week, Dee Dee talked about uh, Psalm 6 from David, and David talks about the idea of uh, being uh, in a state in which his bed is drenched. I have experienced that before. I have woke up from a panic attack in full sweat, all over the sheets, all over the pillow, and I come back the next night to sleep, and it's still drying. Although, if you like a cool bed, it's a nice feeling, I guess. It's not a good feeling at all. This past year, uh, I started to get more physical symptoms of anxiety. And if you ever have anxiety manifest in physical symptoms in 2019, you know that's not a good thing because Google exists. 
And so you start to look up, why, why, why am I having muscle twitching or why am I getting dizzy or something? And inevitably, the interweb tells you that uh, you've got some really, really horrible disease and you're going to die yesterday. <laughs> and so then you panic more. And so naturally, that sent me to the doctor because I actually listened to my mom's advice. And she said, I know you, son. You're just going to worry about it if you don't get it checked out. So I did. And instead of, you know, placating to my fears and my worries that I talked to the doctor about, she said, you know, I want you to come up and I want you to take a test on this computer here. And so I did, and I passed. I got all of them right. Uh, the letter grade I got was GAD. It's on my uh, health record now. It says I have generalized anxiety disorder. Woo! So, you know, I got to thinking about this issue this week, and it would be easy for me to assume that this is something that just kind of came up in a recent sort of sense. But through counseling, I've told stories about uh, past experiences and things like that, and I've realized that this has always been kind of an ever-present thing in my life. And I wanted to tell you a little bit of a funny story that I've thought back on that kind of clued me into this. I was, was in fourth grade, and it was May of 1994, when we had a partial solar eclipse. Does anybody remember the partial solar eclipse of 1994? I'm sure it was riveting for all of you. I can remember uh, all of the, the news clips about, you know, you got to go out and you got to get those cool glasses so you can look at the sun and not burn your eyes out. And I can remember the excitement my classmates had. We were going to all be out on the playground together. We were going to watch as things came into alignment and we were going to be able to look up and see this thing that just doesn't occur that often. And it, it's a wonderful thing to get to experience that. The problem, though, for me is that uh, even as a fourth grader, I apparently paid too much attention to the news at the time. Because they also told you the warnings about looking at the sun for too long. In fact, some even said, even if you have the glasses, if they don't have just the right like stuff, I don't know any of the technical stuff with it, but if you don't have just the right things, you could look at the sun too long and you could lose your vision or have vision impairment. And they even would tell you, you know, as we're on the subject, because this is how news anchors talk, apparently they don't talk like this at all, but, they, but it was this kind of, while we're on the subject, you really shouldn't be looking directly at the sun that often anyway. So then two things kind of started to concern me. One, what if I look at the sun too long with the glasses on and I lose my vision? Or I start looking at the sun too often, as people normally do, and lose their vision. Then the second thing was, and if I did, how long will it take? Will it be a sudden onset vision loss, or will this be a slow progression into my 20s? Because I was really worried about that in fourth grade. Actually, I probably was. Anyway, I was frightened by this. And to make matters worse, even after... We were, uh, you know, our classmates got to look at the, the solar eclipse. My house was set up to where we had a, a, a couch on this side of the room facing a giant window that we constantly had the curtains open on. And the sun would set right there. 
And if it was a perfectly clear sky, that sun would just beam right in on your face. And I got so scared that something was going to go wrong with my eyesight that I would literally sit there trying to dodge looking at the sun into the room. I hated sitting at that spot on the couch. That worry persisted long after the eclipse was done for about three months straight. I had in the, in the back of my mind this ruminating thought, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. I would try to sleep, but it wouldn't. And that's what anxiety does. You see, everybody in this room at one point or another will have a worry, will have an anxious thought, and they'll have many of them. If you have persistent anxiety, it's so easy to take a thought, put a negative spin on it, let it spiral out of control until the worst, most horrible calamity that you can concoct in your mind will stay with you for days and weeks and months and maybe even years. And that's what I deal with. It's real fun. Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters, awesome band, he sings a lyric in a song called No Way Back that I just love. He says in the song, he says, he opens it up and he says, lately I've been living in my head, the rest of me is dead, and I'm dying for truth. And as a person of faith that also struggles with anxiety, this lyric, every time I hear this song, I belt it out because it gets me. Because the truth is that with anxiety, I want the freedom that truth brings, but that need for certainty, that need for the worry to break, it just won't leave my head. Instead, I just stay on and on and on with the horror show that I've concocted. And I take comfort in the fact that I'm not the only one. In fact, I think David, who writes a psalm we're about to look at, was an anxiety sufferer too. I mean, he says this much in different points, but this particular psalm we're going to look at today just really gets deep into what it's like to be a person with anxiety who also has faith and is trying to reconcile their faith with their worry. Because the common thought for an anxiety sufferer is that they are a faithless individual. And if they don't think of themselves, there are plenty of people in the church, unfortunately, that will let them know that they think it about them. And it can really hurt. The psalm we're going to look at, too, you know, we just came out of the Gospel of Mark series, Jesus, that we went through Easter on. And if you are familiar with the crucifixion story, the very first verse of this psalm was on the lips of Jesus as he hung on the cross. So it should be fresh on our minds here. But if it's not, let's read it together. We're going to go through verse 10, and then I'll pick up a couple other verses from the psalm in just a moment. But this is what David writes. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. 
Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. You see, the thing about dealing with anxiety, and specifically in David's case here, is anxiety can, can take the form of perceived danger or real danger. Either one, it doesn't really matter. They can both cause anxiety to persist if you are of the mind that will spiral in that direction. Now, in David's case, his was of the real variety. But I'll tell you this, the real variety that causes anxiety just makes the perceived threats all the more worse. Because if something's gone wrong in the past that confirmed your anxieties before, well, now it just drives up the what-if game again and again and again and again. And David has this posture where as the king, as the man after God's own heart, he is crying out to God and saying, God, our ancestors in the past, they put their trust in you and you actually did something to answer their pleas and yet I'm in the same position as you and yet you give me no deliverance. And all the people that know that my faith is in you, they see me and they mock me because they say, if you're so faithful, why aren't things getting better? Anybody in the room ever heard that before? David says these words, these words that Jesus will later echo on the cross. And not only does Jesus echo the words, but this idea of being mocked and insulted, Jesus experiences that on the cross as a person who is also trusting the Father in obedience all the way to the cross, and yet he hangs on that cross. And so, what do we do with this, this issue, this tension between worry and anxiety and faith? Can you have faith and worry? Can you have faith and be anxious? I think that David would argue yes. Yes, you can. In fact, what's going to happen here is you continue on in this psalm and, and David will continue to plea and tell God his hurts and his worries and his fears and his sense of abandonment. And he will eventually come to verse 22 and he changes gears. He says, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. 
He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. There's this word we like to talk about in relation to God, this word reverence. Maybe you've heard of the idea of being reverent to God. I know I've said things before that my friends down here before uh, have said to me. They said, Did you, are you allowed to say that? You're going to get struck by lightning. They kind of dodge out of the way. I don't blame them. I'm just kidding. Here's the thing about reverence. If your God is so small, so small, that he can't handle your hurts, he can't handle your burdens, he can't handle your anger, he is not the God of the Bible. The God that David cries out to is big enough, great enough, awesome enough to take one on the chin from us every now and then. God doesn't want us to pretty ourselves up and look perfect and put up a wall of piety in order to come to him. No, he wants us to come to him in truth, in our pain. He wants the real, raw, honest relationship And that's what David, the man after God's own heart, brings to God. And yet despite his worries and concerns, David comes and he says and recognizes that God is not to spine or scorn him. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So if you can be both faithful and anxious, then what do we do? Well, what I want you to remember as a fellow anxious person is this. Presence with God presents a way out of our anxiety. Presence with God presents a way out of our anxiety. And I want to unpack that a bit here. See, presence is a funny thing because the moment I say to be present with God, you might in your mind, especially if you're a worrying type or a guilt trip type, might say, well, then I've got to pray more and I've got to read the Bible more and you've got a checklist of things that you ought to do. But the truth is, is that presence isn't just creating a spiritual checklist. Presence actually means being, being present with God right where you're at. And I will promise you this, presence, the ability to be present, takes some work. Let me tell you some of the things I've done to learn how to be present. Number one, let's break some stigma, shall we? You are not weak if you go to counseling. If anybody tells you that, they're wrong. 
If you need to talk to someone, sometimes just getting all of the stuff out of your head and into the open can be incredibly healing and take it out of your head so you can learn to be present. I've already told you, I go to counseling, I still go once a month. And I'm still doing work. They actually give me homework on top of other homework I have to do. But I do it. And what might that homework be? Well, here's one. Uh, I also have started trying to practice mindfulness meditation. Now, before you get your stones out and stone me when you hear the word meditation and you think I'm in some sort of like, you know, weird humming, it's not what that is. Mindfulness meditation is simply the opportunity to learn to be present in the moment. It can start with something as simple as breathing and paying close attention to the in and out rhythm of your breath. And when, not if, when a thought or a worry comes into your mind, you hear it, you don't put any judgment on it, and you let it go on by. Now, mindfulness meditation in this context is not an end in of itself. It is a work to get to the end goal, which is what, again, presence with God. Anybody in this room ever read maybe two pages of a book? You start on the top of page one, you get to the bottom of page two, and you can't remember what you just read. Anybody? I can't be the only one. How about in prayer? Have you ever, have you ever gotten your car and you're like, I've got five minutes on my drive before I get mad at the guy on the road next to me to actually focus and pray and you start to say all the right things. Oh, dear Lord, thou art in heaven and all that stuff. And the moment that you get, I don't I'm making up stuff here. You get to the part where you're actually gonna say something meaningful to you, to God. And then your mind just races. See, that's because you're not trained to be present in the moment with God. Because the worries of this world come in and they choke the presence out of you. It's a little variation on a Jesus saying for you. So I do those things personally to learn how to be present. And then there's one last thing I want to point out. Presence with God presents a way out. Notice I did not say the immediate way out. I have prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed for God to take my anxiety away. And guess what I was doing before I came out here? I was doing one of these because I was so nervous coming out on stage. Why? Because I'm still an anxious person. He hasn't taken it away. And there's a couple reasons I reckon that that hasn't happened. One of them being that I think God wants me to grow. And if he just zapped me and made me a non-anxious person anymore, I wouldn't put in the work. I wouldn't give myself to his work. And the other reason is, do you know how many people I've been open about my anxiety with that have turned to me and said, I deal with the same thing. Call them my anxiety buddies. We pray for each other. 
We talk about the symptoms and stuff like that. And then we laugh about it because it's sometimes ridiculous. I wouldn't be able to be there for other people if I didn't have a way to empathize with their situation. And that's why I love coming to this psalm. Because Scripture actually empathizes with the human condition. It doesn't pretty up any of the characters in this book. Nobody's turned into this perfect reflection outside of Jesus of God. They're just as broken as we are. And yet, we see them turn to God and we see God active in their lives. And it gives us hope that we can have that same relationship with God despite our own brokenness, our own worries, and our own anxieties. Presence with God presents a way out of anxiety. So I wanted to leave you with a, a story in the Gospel of Mark. It's one that we didn't get to touch on in our message series. It's long been one of my favorite stories because of the dad in the story. It's a story in which Jesus heals a boy that is possessed with an unclean spirit. And to set it up for you really quickly, basically Jesus sends out his disciples to do some work. And he comes back to them later, and as he's approaching them, he sees that a crowd has gathered around and there's an argument going on. And Jesus comes and he says, what are y'all arguing, arguing about? He didn't say y'all, but actually he probably, no, no, anyway. So, um, and so this is what happens. This is how the story unfolds. It says, a man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said. More like, if you can. Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet, and he stood up. Now, this sequence of events and what Jesus says when he finds out his disciples couldn't heal the boy have always interested me. Jesus turns and he says, you unbelieving generation. And we could just take that as a general statement to everybody that's looking on. But it seems in the narrative of the story that some of the crowd had actually gone far off from the direct action that's going on. And I think Jesus directed that, that charge, you unbelieving generation, to who? His disciples. His disciples. And interestingly, after he says this, the dad comes and he says, if you can, take pity on us and, and make him well. And Jesus re replies, if I can, do you not know who you're dealing with here? I'm Jesus. I can do these things. Haven't you seen me? But anyway. And that's when, the, that's when the dad responds with what I think is the phrase of praise for my fellow anxious people. He says, I believe, but help me to overcome my unbelief. Help me to overcome my unbelief. Do you know how this story ends? After Jesus heals the boy, his disciples ask him, Lord, why couldn't we drive it out? And Jesus says, well, some of these you can only drive out by prayer. And so naturally, if you're a modern reader, maybe you read that and you think to yourself, oh, I wonder what the special prayer is that can do miracles. And then I can go sell something for $9.99 on TV. Um, but that's not what Jesus is getting at. Do you know what the fault of the disciples was? They were thinking along the way, you know, we're with the Messiah. We're, we're, the, we're the good guys. We're in the position of power. We're the faithful ones. We can go out and conquer anything. We can get rid of an unclean spirit. Except guess what? Their faith didn't work <laughs> at all. Jesus responded in kind to the man who admitted his lack of faith. He responded in kind to the person who was willing to admit face to face with Jesus that I don't have enough faith and I need you to overcome it. That's why Jesus told his disciples that you must rely on prayer. Not because prayer is anything magical, but the God to whom you pray and to him alone is the power to do these things. And that right there is so freeing for someone who thinks that because he worries constantly that he is less than. Because what it means is that God doesn't want my attempt at putting myself all together to come to him. He wants me to come to him as I am and he'll take care of the rest. He wants my presence with him and that's it. 
You know, anxiety doesn't make you unfaithful, but it can make you doubt your faith if you let it. So I want us, when we leave this place today, to think about David. Think about the honesty that David brought to God about his hurts and his anxieties, his sense of abandonment. And I want you to remember that the man after God's own heart came broken before God, trusting that God was going to stay present with him no matter what. And the same is true for you and me. God is always there for us to turn to him. Always there for us to turn to him. Even in the moments when it feels like he isn't. Two of our friends are going to come down here and they're going to be available for you to pray with them. But we also have something special for this entire month since we're going to be going deep into these kinds of subjects that are very heavy for people. I want you to know that we have counselors on site here uh, right uh, to the right of the uh, exit, the main exit out there. And they would love to talk to you. So if, if you are wanting to talk to someone or just wanting to get information about counseling, I encourage you, please go do that. There's nothing wrong with it. And as Hannah just said, you're not alone. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for being so good and so gracious to us. I thank you for the fact that uh, you call us to you and that you're there for us when we need you, that you are uh, big enough to handle all of the things that uh, we deal with in our brokenness. And God, I just pray first for those that are uh, of the anxious variety like myself. I pray, God, that you will um, take, take them and, and show them the things that they need to do to work on uh, overcoming their anxiety. I pray, God, that not only we show them the work that they need to do, but I pray that you will strengthen them and encourage them to go through with that work. And I pray, God, that in that you will help them to be reliant on you as they go through that work so that they not only can draw closer to you, but that they can be a light to those that need them and their story as well. And God, for those that, that don't struggle with this particular issue, uh, I pray, God, that when they have loved ones that, that do, I pray, God, that you will uh, enlighten them, give them the grace to give and the wisdom to know what to say and when not to say anything at all. And I, I pray, God, that, uh, that those people, those loved ones in, in the anxious person's lives will, will be a light and a source of comfort and strength as well. And God, I pray just now as we continue on in this series and we, we dive into these, these heavy matters, I pray, God, that you will help anyone that's dealing with any of these things, whether it be anxiety, depression, addiction, trauma, and anything like that. I pray, God, that you will let them know that it is okay to come to you where they're at and that it is okay to seek the help and to do the work that they need to do to be free. We thank you for being so good to us. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can interact with us online at our website, www.mtcarmelchurch.org. Also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.